Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Hong Kong today with Rob Lillwall, who is an adventurer, an author, and a fellow speaker. Uh, it's great to finally meet you, Rob. Uh, we, we have a common agent, uh, Priscilla, uh, at Speakers Connect, and she's often spoken of you and your adventures. Uh, I, I half expected you to walk in the door with a, with a bicycle. <laughs> or a big beard. Or, or a big beard, but you, you seem very well, sh- and, uh, <laughs> well showered and clean shaven uh, for, <laughs> for a world adventurer. Yeah, yeah, today I am, yeah. yeah. My wife doesn't like big beards, so only when I'm on an expedition, unfortunately. Your wife's Chinese, right? Yeah, yeah, she's Hong Kong They're Chinese, not really big on facial hair. No, they're not, they're not. No. Well, you know, I, when I was reading through your story, uh, and of course, uh, for those of you who don't know, Rob is the, uh, the best-selling author of... Uh, two books so far I, I believe mm-hmm. uh, Cycling Home from Siberia and Walking Home from Mongolia mm-hmm. uh, but the question that sort of first popped into my mind is how does a, a geography teacher from Oxfordshire suddenly decide to give it all up look at the map and go you know what I'm, I'm actually going to cycle the stuff that I've been teaching <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, I mean that you kind of put your finger on it like I was I studied geography at university didn't really know what to do, so I, one of the, I was one of those people who sort of fell into teaching, which is a great job. Um, and I enjoyed it in many ways. There's never a boring moment in the classroom, but one, you know, one. It was my second year teaching. Um, one day I was I was just sort of looking out at these blank faces in front of me and thinking, is this, you know, is this the next forty years um, of my life? Um, and at the same time, other there were a few other things going on where I had a friend who was wanting to do an expedition. Um, he was actually already on an expedition. He was trying to persuade me to join him, and um, and so I thought, like if not now, then when? And I thought now is my chance. Go out, test myself. I'm hoping this was dramatic. Like halfway through class, you sort of threw your bag down and, and walked out. <laughs> it wasn't quite like that. I think the decision might have been made in a you know one of those uh, Thursday afternoon lessons where all hell's breaking loose with the kids, and you think, right? That's it. Um, Siberia can't be worse than this. Yeah, well, it's the easy option, I think. But, um, so um, yeah, so to cut a long story short, I, end, I decided to go on this big bicycle expedition rather than starting from England setting off into the world I would start pretty much as far away as I could think of meeting a, an old friend in northeast Siberia right. um, in this old um, quite sad gulag town it was the they used to call it the gateway to hell this town called Magadan in Siberia where Stalin used to send his you know the the most um, desperate prisoners were sent by Stalin out to Magadan. They called it the gateway to hell. They said, if you're sent to Magadan, you'll never come home. Right. And millions died out in that part of Siberia. That does beg the question how you end up with an old friend who happened to be out there. <laughs> yeah, he, well, he, that's a very long story, but he was in America. So we met halfway in Magadan, northeast, like top right-hand corner of Russia, if you imagine that. Right. There's only one road out of Magadan called the Road of Bones, which the prisoners built. And so many of them died, their bones are sort of part of the road. So it's this crazy little road going for 3,000 miles through Russia. And we, again, it wasn't really part of the plan, but we were ready to start in September. 
So we set off in September, which is not a good time to set off into Siberia. Um, well, it is for the first two weeks, but all the Russians we met, they were so friendly. Um, and the Russians are such nice people, very big-hearted people. Right. Um, but they would say, you know, welcome to Russia, but why, if you come in September, you will freeze to death. And so <laughs> within about three weeks, the winter was starting to arrive. And then other Russians were saying, no, you'll be eaten by bears, or you'll be eaten by wolves, or, you know, the people in the wilderness are crazy, they'll kill you. So everybody had a different theory on how we were going to die. But there was a consensus that you were going to die. We were going to die, <laughs> just they didn't make up their minds how. And, so, and it was a real, I mean, I'd been on short adventures before. It's not like I'd done nothing before. But this was like, for the first time in my life, I thought, I actually might die in the next few months. It was a pretty sobering... And, and, and really, within a couple of weeks, was it snowing and cold? Yeah, it was snowing um, by the beginning of October. By the end of October, it was minus 40. Um, right. So it was um, very... Like my, were you equipped? I mean, um, I mean, we had we were on a super low budget. You know, I was, I'd been a teacher before, so I, right. I just had... I, I had about... 10,000 US dollars saved up for three, a bit over 10,000 US dollars for a three year journey. So I had to live cheap. So we had like an old tent somebody had given us. And we had okay sleeping bags, but we were sort of um, <laughs> making it up as we went along. And it was a. But, but it wasn't your bike from school with the basket in front. Um, no, it was my bike. It was quite an old bike, but it was just a mountain bike, like right. a $500 mountain bike. So it was a good sturdy steel frame bike. And but we, you, I mean, a there were, there were a lot of even out in the remote Siberia, um, you know, thousands of miles from the nearest city, there are still people. You know, there's either the local uh, Yakut Indian, which is like the indigenous people, uh, living. They live kind of out in the hills, like, um, and then you get little little weather stations in the middle of nowhere, gold mines. Um, these gold miners go around in tanks. I mean, it's a pretty, it's like the in, Wild in West. In tanks? Yeah, they go around in tanks um, um, without the gun bit on because uh, they need their caterpillar wheels to get over these right. roads. Um, and there's quite a lot of gold up there, uranium up there. So maybe every 50 miles we'd come to a gold mine. Um, uh, so some nights we're camping, some nights we just knock on these gold miners' doors and they'd, they'd look after us. So it was a great... Um, Did they think you were insane? They thought we were completely insane. But they they kind of loved it's it. It's like mad dogs and Englishmen out in the noonday sun. Yeah. I mean, Russians love a tragic hero. You know, like right. Russians love... kind of They kind of love suffering, you know. Um, and uh, so they'd take us in, tell us we were crazy. You were like characters from a Tolstoy novel. Yeah, well, exactly. It felt a bit like that sometimes. Um, so, yeah, somehow we made it through Russia... Uh, we got the ferry across to northern Japan to um, Hokkaido hmm. um, in about December that was and then me and Al split up um, so we're still good friends but we, we ended up riding different routes back to England from there partly I think I partly I wanted to take a detour down to Australia and Al wanted to go a more direct route um, and partly I felt like I just needed to um, sort of face the fears on my own right. and it's great to go on an adventure with a friend but with with a friend I was sort of hiding behind Al him he was better than better than me at being brave and figuring out problems and I thought I've got to do this most of this on my own to really grow up so the, the, this route you you, you took was, was it actually quite a famous road is this similar to the one that you and McGregor yeah exactly the same one they were on it about six months before us but he, he had a motorbike 
he had a motorbike and they were in the summer right um but you and we met people on on the road actually who had like pictures of them and they're saying oh yeah we met ewan and charlie and i don't think they knew they were famous which is quite funny so um so they'd come through the summer before us so they'd encountered all the big flooded rivers which right. is a different sort of problem when we went through the rivers were all frozen so you could just ride across them but then again it's very it was cold, freezing so, so it's sort well, of what like, is the history of that route I mean is that, is that quite a well established like was it was it used for something in the past for trade or well that road it was only really the, the gulags is what opened it up you know the oh, Russian right. camps in the 30s 40s 50s and, and when they discovered gold and uranium up there they sent the prisoners out there Stalin's prison, political prisoners usually they said for every kilogram of gold mined, I think it was, that somebody died. You know, it was a real, it's kind of like, to a Russian, Magadan has got slightly the same connotations as, as Auschwitz. You know, right. it was a place of, of death and and very, very um, horrific place back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, now it's just this old run-down communist town with some mining around it. And the road is not very well travelled, you know. People in Magadan... They didn't think the road even existed. They, they said the road doesn't even connect to civilization because everyone flew, flies to Magadan. But as we went along it, we found there were like weathermen and hmm. gold miners. And and then as you after about 2,000 miles, you get back to the railway. Um, so Ewan McGregor and, and Charlie, um, what's it called, Charlie Borat Bourne, um, they've done it, and I think I think now you know a few other adventurers do it every year. So it's it's actually a very cool route. If you're looking for an adventure. What, what, what was some, what was probably the most terrifying and dangerous moment in that particular adventure? That one. Um, well, that I mean that uh, that was the start of, of a three year bike. That was the first three months of the bike trip in the Russian part. Uh, we got as we came back into civilization beside the railway one night, just on the edge of a town two drunk Russians stopped us and pulled a gun on us and stole everything in our wallet and then let us go. I think they wanted vodka money. So that was just terrifying. Um, brief but terrifying. I think it was probably more, I find fear, I don't know if you find this, but fear is, uh, isn't it a Shakespeare line? You know, present fears are less than horrible imaginings, where it's the horrible imaginings is the worst bit. So it was as we were setting off, all these Russians telling us about how we were going to die and you imagine the fears is much less than when you're actually when it does hit minus 40 and you're shivering that's pretty alarming but it's not as bad as imagining yourself freezing to death and even now like you know I don't know if you still get nervous speaking but I still get a bit nervous I find speaking I'm I'm okay once I'm on the stage giving a talk but an hour beforehand that's when I start Imagining my talk going wrong or something, and that's when I find the scary bit. Is it better or worse than imagining bears and wolves eating you, though? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to. There is a reason because I mean, having faced so many dangers and overcome them, does it sort of permanently reset your your fear levels, or do you just worry about other things? I'm quite a natural, fearful, worrier sort of person, and maybe that's why I seek these things out to sort of prove to myself I I can face fears um, so I think it does up your it sort of ups your tolerance in some ways it makes you more discerning when people tell you you're going to die you, you don't just believe them you think well they're, they're being well meaning but they might not actually know uh, what the real dangers are 
Um, so it, this, this sounds more like an actuary than an adventurer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, there, there's a very um, you know, it's partly rational. You've got to be quite rational, clear, clear thinking, and you've got to be partly to trust your intuition a bit. Who do you trust? Um, and I think, yeah, as you go along, you get you get a little bit less frightened. Maybe you come to terms. You know, you start thinking a bit about one's one's own death is quite a helpful thing. I think we're in a culture which, you know, you can either fear death, not fear death, or just ignore death. And we're in a culture which just tries to ignore it and pretend it's not there. But but this sort of forces you to face your mortality, which is quite a healthy thing, I think, once yeah. in a while. So so um. Yeah, but now I still get frightened of things. I get, I don't get so much frightened of um, like public speaking. I, I get a bit frightened. I get terrified of putting my hand up in a lecture and asking questions. So recently, that's been my big challenge. When I go to watch someone speak, I'm always like, I've got to ask a question. That terrifies me. But by facing it, it gives me a real sense of like, okay, you're moving in the right direction. <laughs> so, 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 so tell me more about the adventure. So that adventure, anyway, we um, I continued on, went down through China, got to Hong Kong. Um, then I hitchhiked on boats from Hong Kong to Australia, so sort of yachts and cargo ships, which took me through Papua New Guinea, which is a pretty, I didn't know a lot about it, um, but um, I know Australians know a bit more about it, but it's it pretty lawless, Papua New Guinea and right. jungles. And that was pretty terrifying. But the, the cannibalism stopped, presumably. Cannibalism stops, but sadly, I think law and order is is at a very basic stage. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of murder, a lot of gunpoint robbery. That sort were of they thing. as welcoming as the uh, Siberians? Well, ninety nine percent of them are. You know, even oh. when one percent is especially deadly, it still means most people will be all right. So, but I had to be very. Well, I took as much care as I could. So when I got to a village, I'd try and stay with the headman or a teacher. Um, I'd try and find local guides, not travel at night. Um, I was chased through one village by these guys with machetes. Um, and I was on a bike, luckily. But um, but I didn't even know. Are they, are they uh, trying to kill me or are they just being friendly? Because most people have got a machete, you know, that's normal. It's a bit like having a mobile phone. And so, um, but as that was scary, but I got through it. Um, and then I went halfway around Australia and cycled home through kind of Southeast Asia, Tibet, um, Afghanistan. That was the next really scary one. And then sort of in... Well, what, was, what was Afghanistan like? Well, that, I think... Um, I mean, another one of the sort of lessons I learned, if you like, which I think apply, I find applies whatever I'm doing in life, it's about, about calculated risk-taking. Um, but for calculated risk-taking, I think it's so important to talk to people who are real experts, not just base your decisions on purely on Google searches or what you see on TV, right. but to try and talk, try and, and, and I think this, this is where technology is super helpful. You can get in touch with real experts extremely quickly. You know, the whole seven degrees of separation, but it's, it's actually, you know, a lot less if you're kind of a bit well connected already. And so you could, I could find people who were working for the UN in Kabul, friends of friends or friends of friends of friends and, and those sorts of people. So I got a lot of advice. Um, before I went went there, because I wanted to see it, but obviously I knew it was dangerous. And and I asked everyone, is the whole of Afghanistan dangerous, or just some parts dangerous? And most people emailed back, and they said the whole of Afghanistan is dangerous, but some parts are especially dangerous. Um, so they said the south is no go. That's right. crazily dangerous. East and west, 
pretty dangerous, a bit unstable, not a good idea. Uh, at that time, the North and Kabul were relatively stable. So I kind of had this map like, okay, these parts are relatively stable, might be all right if I'm just traveling in daylight, um, find a safe place to sleep. Other areas, no go. And I actually, you, you were still cycling at this I was stage. still cycling, yeah. The whole of that trip was cycle and boat. But um, apart from entering Afghanistan, so that, that bit from Peshawar, which is the city in Pakistan on the border, um, all the advice said do not cycle over the Khyber Pass down to Kabul because that's a bit of a, a day, you know, sort of journalists and things have been pulled out of cars and shot on that route. So, right. um, so that route, well, I didn't, I didn't go as far as flying. So I, I, I caught a taxi up to uh, the Khyber Pass, which is the border, with an armed guard, and then I um, put the bike on the top of a bus from the Khyber Pass down to. Kabul. So the one bit of the trip where I compromised on my cycling, still pretty scary, uh, just taking public transport. Um, but I think it was the right decision. And I think calculated risk taking is part of it is being prepared to modify your plans in light of the research. Hmm. Um, and I got to Kabul and I cycled up into the north, which was still terrifying. Uh, you know, there's armed soldiers and blown up tanks everywhere. Um, but I guess luckily at that stage, because you were fully bearded, you probably passed as a local. Uh, a very strange local, wearing a bicycle helmet and, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I try, you know, you try and be respectful to the culture. I, yeah. I wasn't going to have to try and pretend I wasn't, you know, I was just an eccentric um, traveller. But I was, you know, I was okay. I was terrified. You get this sense, real sense of sadness of just seeing yeah. just how many decades, things going going on for decades, the... Um, you know the violence there and most people looked after me a few people not very happy to see me so I just jumped on the bike kept riding Um, and I think I mean I think in some ways you know reflecting on the technology stuff in some ways the technology makes it safer to explore parts of the world because obviously you can stay in touch more easily Uh, though I I didn't even carry a mobile phone for 80% of that trip I quite like just being just unwired. Um, but this was about nine years ago, right? This was about nine years ago. So there were normal mobile phones, but yeah. not smartphones. And I, about 20% of the time I had a, a mobile phone. Um, but I think, just reflecting on it, the, the, the risk that mobile phones add is that now the, the bad guys, of which there aren't many, but there's enough to, you know, it's a small proportion of any population. Um, let's say you're going through Papua New Guinea or some other country with some criminal, you know, more than your average criminals. Nowadays, they can, you whiz past on your bicycle, waving and smiling, but not stopping because you don't like the look of them. And nowadays, they can phone up their mate 10 miles on and say, hey, there's a nice juicy cyclist coming. Um, why don't you get him? You know, so the, the bad guys can, in, in a way, plan for your arrival. Whereas in the old days, before mobile phones, you could just <laughs> be whistling along and you can pass <clears throat> through danger areas really before people know you're coming a little bit. So it's just, I think, I, I, this is just me speculating, but yeah. I think as well as it increasing your security, there are maybe a few sides to it which might add to the risk. Well, when you planned your next adventure, you decided to get rid of the bike and, mm-hmm. and walk. Mm-hmm. How did that change the dynamics of, of the adventure in a sense? Um, yeah, I wanted to try walking as a different challenge. Um, it, I mean, what, what was the trip that you planned for yourself? So the, the second one, it was kind of a sequel. Um, so the first one was cycling home from Siberia, Siberia to London. Um, 
on the Siberia trip was when I actually met Christine when I cycled through Hong Kong. So I got married after the cycling trip to a girl I met uh, whilst here in Hong Kong. Huh. Um, so we got married in London, then we moved back to Hong Kong. So this is about five, six years ago. Um, now living in Hong Kong is my home, and I thought I'm going to try another trip trying to get home to my new home, Hong Kong. Let's walk home from Mongolia. So I flew to Mongolia to the middle of the Gobi and walked home. Big extra challenges of walking. I mean, it, I think the hardest thing is you've got to carry everything on your body. It's not on your bicycle frame. It's actually on you. So that just compounds your your back and adds to a lot of stress on your body walking. And walking is very slow much harder than cycling physically um, mm. when you've got a heavy load. Plus, I, I had sort of inadvertently gone from a total amateur geography teacher explorer to a semi-professional, I had a National Geographic TV show, I got a, another one commissioned for that walk. So then we had like, I took a friend who was a cameraman on that trip, and we had like two big cameras, four small cameras, laptop, hard drives, cables, you know, uh, batteries. So like... We and, like, and, and nothing to carry it but yourself yeah exactly so we had a trailer across the Gobi Desert which we, dra- we dragged a kind of cart behind us because we had a lot of food and water then when we got to China we just carried it in our packs but you know 10-15 kg was it was kind of technology which you know I cursed daily <laughs> so apologies to the future futurist <laughs> technologies well but no presumably I, if you did it now you'd just say I'm going to be an Instagram star yeah exactly <laughs> just, just one nice little iPhone is all you need so yeah so that is getting a lot easier now um, so it was a tough walk um, uh, plus the whole professional side of it being accountable you know I had a pre-commissioned TV show you're accountable to people you can't just say hey I'm going to totally change my route or I'm going to just take three weeks off you know you, you suddenly you're a lot more accountable so that that it was a very interesting brilliant experience but added a lot to the stress levels on that trip uh, I, I was interested when you mentioned uh, when you're going through Mongolia that your encounters with people and, and their exposure to technology mm-hmm. uh, I think you, you said even in the in the in the guards that they, they actually had televisions and, and satellite dishes yeah so in the Gobi the desert before I went there I thought it was one of the kind of emptiest worst deserts in the world it's actually it's there's quite a lot of people out there like no because there is a little bit of grass so about every let's say every 30 miles you come to a little nomad uh gare like a yurt um Mm. with they've got camels and goats and things outside um and again they'd welcome us in look after us very very kind it was the winter again so it was cold and they had um most of them not all of them most of them had a car or a truck parked outside um, of some sort. Um, a lot of them had a TV and a sort of rudimentary satellite dish. And I actually found it quite sad that, you know, when they ate dinner, they all would have their eyes glued to the TV. And it's one of those. Um, did you ever see um, The Weeping Camel? Was no. the movie. It was a movie about 10 years ago. It was called The Story of the Weeping Camel, which is about, Mon- about the Mongolian nomads and then about one of the kids wanting a TV documentary and, and it's kind of is um, and there's this expression that the Dalai Lama uses of cultural genocide you know of when a culture is losing its its culture and I think the television is is a kind of kind of destroys culture in a way because suddenly you're not getting your stories being told all night uh, you know passed down the traditions the conversation and I think 
It's a double-edged sword. Do you, do you think technology is a double-edged sword when it comes to well, this stuff? It's hard to say. It feels like every generation complains about whatever the new technology is and says it's mm. going to change everything forever. Mm. Um, but it depends on what they were watching. I mean, were they, were they anticipating you? They, had they seen you on television when you turned up? Or, or, or were they watching local programming? It would, well, it would have been in local languages. Um, remember what it was I think it's sort of a mixture of soap operas and you know <laughs> whatever you know whatever's being beamed out to them um, I, I often wonder you know like I, I, that's why I was fascinated that as you sort of went to these quite remote places was technology leading to a kind of a global international standard of sameness for all of us I mean now that we're all on Facebook are we the same or do people adopt technology in very local cultural ways Brilliant question. I, I think aspects of it are going to be, um, you know, people use it in their own way with their own conversations on Facebook and so on. Um, but I think things like TV is what's trying to push certain agendas. But then I suppose now we're, we're kind of leapfrogging over TV tells us what to watch, so now we can decide what to watch. So I suppose maybe we're, we're entering a a phase where which is becoming more diversified this is me speculating a bit but I think when it's you know the TV companies are choosing what everyone watches I think that's I, I would say that's sort of forcing people to into their mould but now maybe it's getting better well, it'd be interesting if you, if you if you that was about five years ago if you went back past those Mongolian yurts would there be a whether they've got Netflix now. Yeah, it won't be long. Yeah, when, when will Wi-Fi be um, the desert? And I suppose the kids as well. It'll be such a different... The kids seeing the, you know, the world, the cities, the local city. I, you know, a lot of them I don't think will be sticking around in the desert once they get a bit older. So, it's yeah, I think that's probably a good thing, isn't it, in a lot of ways. But sad to lose that those close-knit nomadic communities. Well, in, your more, in a more recent adventure, you and, and your wife uh, toured across America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, was that actually more frightening than, than in some ways than going through Siberia and, and Papua New Guinea? Well, yeah, it's interesting because Christine is a Hong Kong girl, so she's not grown up. A lot of Hong Kong folks don't kind of go camping or stuff, so she, she'd never gone camping. Um, so it was a big step for her. We'd been like camping for a few times for a couple of nights, and suddenly it was her idea actually. Let's ride across America on a tandem, hmm. and so it was a big, big trip. And obviously, I felt quite protective. It adds a lot of. What was the What was the route you took? Uh, basically, LA to New York via via um, kind of Oklahoma, Arkansas. So not not the deep south, but sort of southernish. Um, but the Americans are great people, you know. They looked after us well. Total strangers again, inviting us in. Um, what, what were your sort of cultural observations as a as an Oxfordshire geography teacher looking at this culture? I mean, I think I mean it's interesting. Well, it's interesting times in America, isn't it? Because mm. you know you're sort of um, you know people who politically I might not really understand at all. Like you're kind of um, rabid Trump voting. You know that sort of um, sorry, it's a nasty word, isn't it? Rapid. Your enthusiastic Trump voting <laughs> person, um, often with the kindest people in the world. You know, your farmers out in the middle of Oklahoma look after us and cook for us, and 
you know, they'd be very worried about us and they couldn't believe we weren't carrying a handgun. And they'd say, you know, you know, because they think, you know, they watch too much Fox News, which tells them the whole world is just full of murderers. And Mexicans. And, and, Mexi- and Mexicans, um, <laughs> uh, you know. And, and, um, and so they'd be very worried about us and have the, quite a negative view of the world, even of, of um, the next city. Right. Um, some of them were convinced Christine was going to be kidnapped and trafficked to Mexico in the next city, you know. And it, you know, in like Little Rock, which is, you know, most of it's fine. You know, obviously, you've got to be a bit careful in America. But um, they were such good people, but then had quite wild world views. So that was an interesting... There's an interesting kind of parallel with the, the, the families in, in, in Russia who who were fearing for your lives with wolves and bears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just funny how that translates in the US to, uh, yeah. to, to other things. But as you say, it's wild imaginings, right? It's wild imaginings, um, horrible imaginings, and, um, and it's all coming out of a good place. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was good, it was a good experience, America. And um, yeah, and, and like the technology, I guess this being my most recent trip, the technology has changed as an adventurer now where now you can you can Instagram your whole trip, you know, virtually live, feed the whole thing. But I, I suppose I'm maybe I'm a bit of an old school person. I think there's a, a really fine balance, or maybe it's not fine balance, there's a balance between doing a trip because you want to do it and doing it in order to tell people you're doing it. Right. And it's, it's, it's quite, because I'm, semi-professional with this now but I've still erred away from doing stuff in the moment I prefer to I, I give lectures TV shows whatever afterwards but I, I find if I'm constantly thinking about oh this would make a great uh, Instagram moment it stops you from actually being present in that moment uh, in that moment which is the same anything you do in life but I think it's especially sad if you go out somewhere wild and you're still thinking uh, oh, we've got to photograph this I mean, yeah. well I mean a lot of people, especially who work with traditional jobs, dream of adventure. Mm. Uh, not maybe not everyone can give up what they're doing completely and, and go on a three-year tour. But mm. what does adventure mean to you? And I mean, do you think it's something that people can bring into their lives without necessarily abandoning everything? Yeah, I think. I mean, there's two ways you can you can do it. One is um, actually my old friend Al, who I cycled through Siberia with. He's got this cool concept. He's based in the UK. He calls micro adventures, and that's all about once you are a bit more tied down with with jobs and mortgages and family, um, and you're lamenting that you can't go off on your adventures. Um, he says, "Well, you work. Let's say you work nine to five. What are you doing five to nine? Why don't you uh, today when you go to work um, sneakily take a tent and sleeping bag with you, and then instead of going home, just go and." you know camp in the local park or camp on top of your local <laughs> hill when he visited Hong Kong we just camped up on the peak one night and you know drank whiskey and then walked back I walked back down the hill and gave a talk so uh, you can just even 12 hours um, you can have a great adventure the other day I had a talk um, at a conference in uh, Yunnan province in China and I, I just booked an extra day on my flight and after one night in the hotel giving the, the conference and the next night I just climbed the local man- mountain camps and then walked back to the airport and it was a great it was enough to really recharge my adventure batteries um, and you can have a lot of a lot of adventure like that on, on the other on the other way I think is just to think of you know whatever we're doing in life 
it can be treated as an adventure, you know, overcoming a certain fear. Like for me, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm terrified of asking questions at a lecture. To me, that's just as exciting as, um, you know, crossing a new country in some ways, because it's just touching my fear. And if I can face that fear with that adventurous mentality, it's a great experience of kind of personal growth, of, of, of fulfillment and, and adventure. Rob, it was a great pleasure meeting you. Thank you for being on the show and sharing your adventures. Hey, great to meet you, Mike. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.